The preaching of God's Word tonight comes from the Gospel of Luke. If you turn to chapter 7 of that Gospel, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 17 tonight in particular. Luke 7, 11 through 17. This is God's holy Word. This is a record of Jesus' early ministry. Jesus has just healed the servant of a a Roman centurion, and now we read, beginning at verse 11, "'Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow.'" And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then He came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. We'll read, we'll end there in the reading of God's word tonight. Well, week after week, a pastor uh, witnessed a visitor to the church scowling at him from the front pew. And the man seemed entirely put off as the minister explained the ways of God from the Bible, occasionally even shaking his head with disapproval at what the minister was saying. And so one Sunday after the service, the pastor finally gathered up his nerve and he approached the man uh, to ask him about his disapproving attitude during his sermons. You seem so hostile to my preaching, friend, he asked. Don't you believe in God? And the man responded, oh, I believe in God all right. I'm just not crazy about how he does things. Well, that little illustration expresses why many people do, in fact, reject God. They don't like the way He does things. His ways don't appeal to them. Perhaps you've had a friend or, or a family member, an unbelieving family member or friend that said to you on, on one occasion or another, I can't believe in a God who can cause or allow so much suffering in the world, so much suffering not just in the world but in my life. I can't believe in a God like that. And perhaps sometimes we forget that, in fact, the Bible itself gives believers a voice for questioning the ways of God, especially in the midst of great anguish, when God's ways seem inscrutable to us. You think of Job's words in Job 10, why did you bring me out of the womb, God, just to afflict me the way you have? Perhaps some of you tonight have witnessed God fulfill your greatest hopes and dreams and prayers only to see those expectations shattered later on. 
Sometimes the providence of God leaves us perplexed. We ask, why does God sometimes give only to take away again? And His ways sometimes leave us grasping for an answer, grasping for a purpose in it all. And the woman of Nain found herself in such a situation, such a trial of faith. God had granted her earlier in her life two men to care for her, to provide for her everyday needs, a husband and an only son. And then perhaps in just a short time, God sovereignly snatched them away again, leaving her in a state of fear, in a state of destitution. In the aftermath of her great loss, I imagine she flirted with doubts about the goodness and the power of God. Why would He do such a thing? Why would He do such a thing to me? And this short account of a nameless widow from the small town of Nain is here in the Bible for a reason. It's here by God's design to encourage us in the midst of the challenge of God's providence. Her life teaches us that, yes, God's ways are not our ways, but His grace and His power is sufficient for us in the midst of trial. God does sometimes give and then take away again, but He does that for a purpose. He does that to kindle our longing for the ultimate treasure of our Christian hope, and that is nothing short of the resurrection of the dead, the renewal of physical and spiritual life and the restoration of all things accomplished by our Lord Jesus Christ. So tonight we're going to consider this woman's predicament. We're going to glory in Jesus' compassionate intervention in her life and then be reminded of the glorious resurrection promise that we have and all believers have through faith in Jesus Christ. As I said, uh, this portion of Luke is recounting the early point, the early part of Jesus' earthly ministry. And at this part in His ministry, He's just begun to demonstrate His divine power, not just by His preaching about the kingdom of God, but also by the working of miracles. And up to this point in Luke's narrative, Jesus has been working uh, different types of miracles, mainly the driving out of demons. Uh, the healing of the sick, the healing of the disabled. But when he and his disciples come to the town of Nain, uh, a Galilean village not that far from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, when he and his disciples arrive there and the great crowd that's following them, together they encounter the most severe effect of sin upon human life. They encounter death itself. And as they drew near to the city gate, what, hap- what comes out? A funeral procession is exiting the city, and it's led by the mourner. And she was a woman whose situation could hardly have been more destitute, more desperate. Verse 12 brings it into perspective for us. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. This poor woman was not only a widow. She had lost her husband some time ago, but now things have gone from bad to worse. Now she is totally alone. For The the text tells us that she has lost not just one of her sons, her only son. She'd lost 
both of her lifelines, both of her means of security. Because, of course, at this time in history, a woman without a male protector, a woman without a male provider, with hardly any opportunity to make a living for herself, a woman like that was in dire straits. More than that, her family line had come to an end. There was no one to help her. She was truly and utterly alone, and that would have been for her a great trial of faith. God had blessed her before with all the means necessary to live a happy and a productive and a safe life, and then He snatched those means away from her, perhaps without warning. And she must have wondered, now what? Now what? Psalm 68, Psalm 146 promised that God was the protector. He was the holder of widows. But how would He fulfill that covenant promise now that both her husband and her only son had died? Oh, her her plight had caught the attention of the villagers. They followed her, perhaps with some sympathy. But we know how often God had to discipline His people Israel because they failed to care for the fatherless and the widows in their midst. She couldn't depend entirely upon the the city or her neighbors. By all appearances, her covenant God had failed her. Her situation was utterly tragic. Her predicament was grave. And we remember that there are other times in Israel's history when, at least from the perspective of God's people, God seemed far off. He seemed distant. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Asked the writer of Psalm 10. In Psalm 89, the writer pleads, Lord, where is your steadfast love that you promised to David? You seem so far away. There are times when God in His secret yet perfect inscrutable providence seems far away, seems absent from us. When illness and death take a loved one for whom we prayed fervently. When a child who we raised obediently in the knowledge and the fear of God rejects the covenant and chooses spiritual death instead. When a faithful servant of the Lord misses out on a restful retirement due to a debilitating illness, we ask, where are you, Lord? Where is your steadfast love? that you swore to your servants of old. And yet, even in the circumstances of this widow's plight, the gracious, the loving, the providential hand of God is clearly at work. It's here, nestled among the details, and the original language makes it even clearer. Luke really writes here in verse 13 and following, or I should say verse 12 and following. He says, basically, just as Jesus and His disciples entered the city, behold, the woman and her dead son were leaving it. Uh, if an unbeliever were reading this text, they might conclude, what a coincidence, <laughs> what, what, a, what a glorious happenstance that just as Jesus and His disciples and this large crowd of followers we're entering the city. It just so happened that this funeral procession was leaving it, but this is hardly a coincidence. This is a divine appointment. 
an appointment set before the foundations of the world at which Jesus' lordship over sin and death and hell should be demonstrated for the salvation of His people. Here, for the first time in His gospel, Luke refers to Jesus as Lord. For in this small town, For this seemingly insignificant woman, Jesus is going to demonstrate that He is the Lord and Master over death itself. And so we see Jesus steps in to intervene in this woman's life, and He does it in an extremely compassionate way. We read here simply that He saw her, and He was immediately moved by love and compassion. His heart went out to her. Jesus acted in the way most natural to Him, most natural to who He is as the Savior who is gentle and lowly in heart and in spirit towards sufferers and towards sinners. And out of His heart of love and compassion, He addressed her, and the way that He addresses her kind of surprises us. Amazingly, He addresses her and gives her a directive in the midst of her grief. He says to her, weep no more. Weep no more. Who can say such a thing? You know, when our daughter Scotland cries over something small, I might say, Amanda might say, stop crying now. You're okay, Scotland. It's going to be just fine. No more tears. But I must confess that that my sympathy in those moments can be fairly superficial. (laughs) I think she's mostly fine. I think her problems are small, and, and I really just want her to stop blubbering so we can get on with the day. But Jesus' directive here is not fake sympathy for her situation, for the woman's situation. It's not a a, a naive, good-intentioned wish that she would just sort of buck up and be okay. Cry no more. Jesus could declare to her, in the midst of her sorrow and her loss and her loneliness, her destitution, He could declare to her, weep no more, because He is the one who had come to defeat death and to remove sorrow. Human sympathy is often... Uh, not heartfelt. It's often helpless in dealing with grief. But Christ's compassion toward His suffering saints is effective. He can intervene. He will intervene to remove the sting of sin and death from our lives. And that is what He did in Nain. But notice how He does it. He does it in an unthinkable way. Luke records in verse 14 and following that Jesus approached the dead body, and He didn't just approach, He touched. He touched the bier, the, the frame or the stand on which the corpse of the man was laid as He was being carried in His funeral procession. Jesus came and He touched it. He did the unthinkable thing for a law-abiding Jew. He touched a dead body. He touched the stand upon which a dead body lay. As you may know, according to Jewish ceremonial law, touching a dead body made a person unclean. But what the crowd didn't yet understand 
was that Jesus had come to earth to make such laws obsolete. He came to dwell among the unclean. He submerged Himself in the uncleanness of this world, yet without being tainted by it Himself, so that He might overcome it, so that He might exercise lordship over it and defeat it. That's what the the prophet Isaiah foretold when he spoke about Jesus Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 4, when he said, Jesus came to our earth to bear, to wear, as it were, our griefs. He came to carry, to touch, to become intimately acquainted with our sorrows so that He might ultimately put them away once and for all. Instead of becoming defiled, He came to earth to conquer death and defilement once and for all. The people are shocked by His gesture. They stand still. They sense that something new is going to happen. And then Jesus spoke. He spoke. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. He simply spoke. There was no elaborate ceremony no special ingredients necessary. By the mere power of Jesus' Word, the dead man sat up, alive, speaking. Do you doubt the power of the Word of God to raise the dead, whether physical or spiritually? Sometimes we in the church are convinced that in order to build the kingdom, in order to reach the spiritually lost, that we need complex strategies, that we need human interventions and emotional gimmicks, but we must not lose confidence in the saving power of God's Word, the Word of Christ, because it's the Spirit's tool by which He miraculously gives life back to dead people today as much as then. It's the life-giving Word of Christ that's going to calm the mourner's soul. It's the life-giving Word of Jesus that's going to restore the wayward child. It's the life-giving Word of Christ that still today comforts the suffering and the disappointed Christian. So far from losing everything, the widow now had her lifeline restored by her true kinsman redeemer, as Jesus gave her son back to her alive. Jesus comes. He steps in in the midst of her suffering, and He acts as her faithful covenant mediator, and He restores this believing family by the mere exercise of His Word, by the mere utterance of His Word. And He made it look easy. Elijah had raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Elisha, the prophet, brought the Shunammite son back to life. But if you go back and look at those accounts, both those prophets, both those men had to struggle to bring about the restoration of life. They had to repeat their prayers for healing, and at points they wondered if they were going to be successful at all. But Christ merely had to speak. For He is Lord, He is God, and His victory over sin and death is immediate, it's complete, and His providential provision for His saints is timely and perfect in every way. 
But the resurrection of the widow's son was not just for her benefit. It was also to be a public event. The resurrection of her son was to be a lesson for the people of Israel. We read in Luke's account that the crowd that saw the miracle reacted appropriately for people who find themselves in the presence of God. We read in verse 16, fear seized them all, and they glorified God. They even saluted Jesus as a great prophet. They said, he's on par with Elijah. He's on par with Elisha, for they had also raised the dead. But of course, they underestimated the greatness and the power of Jesus, because He was not merely a prophet, but God Himself. Something they acknowledged, even without realizing what they exclaimed, God has visited His people. Truly, He had. Emmanuel, God with us, had begun His ministry on earth. His fame was growing, and death and spiritual darkness was no match for His power. That was a lesson Israel needed to learn, that God alone, not idol gods, not human inventions, but God alone can raise the dead and deliver His people from their sin and from their troubles. They needed to learn that God alone can can preserve His people and protect them in this life. It's He alone that, that enables them to endure until the very end. God alone can swallow up death and spiritual darkness by the resurrection life of Jesus, His Son. And so we see the the raising to life of the widow of Nain's son was a lesson for the people of Israel, but it is for us something uh, as well. It is a foretaste. It's a sneak peek, a preview of what Jesus will do for us when we put our faith in Him until the very end. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, there's a record of the many saints of old that are praised, that are commended for their faith, for their obedience to God. And and on that wall of faith, as it were, there are many plaques, Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, many other heroes, as it were, of faith. And on that wall, there is another plaque, and it reads this, women who receive back their dead by resurrection. They had the assurance of things hoped for, the writer says. They had the conviction of things not yet seen. And yet we are told in that passage that although these women were commended through their faith, they did not receive the fullness of what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They received a foretaste of what we have come to know more vividly in Jesus Christ, the Savior whose victorious resurrection secures our final victory over sin and Satan and death and hell. We have Jesus, the greater Elijah and the better Elisha. We have a Savior who can declare, weep no more because He Himself has the power to end all tears on the last day. We have a Savior who only needs to speak to raise the dead and give new life to the spiritually lost. He is the all-powerful grave robber, and not the perplexing trials of this life, 
not even our great and last enemy death itself, can put you outside of Jesus' power or beyond the sound of His voice when He cries, come and enter into my joy, enter into my life, my rest. And so, friends, put your faith in Jesus, the grave robber. We read about His resurrecting power in the Bible so that we can know so that we can have assurance that death and disease and paralyzing trials and crushing disappointments will never be victorious. They'll never have the last word for the child of God. God promises us the ultimate victory over life, over death, through Christ's resurrection power, and that word is a reliable word. It will not fail you. He is turning all things to your good, even when the trials that He brings into our lives leave us perplexed and wondering. Sometimes He does put limits on our understanding, but He does it so that we are moved to prayer, so that we're moved to a greater reliance on Him. But in His Word, He gives us previews of His power so that we can be absolutely assured that not even death will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives, and sometimes He takes away again, but He's faithful. His Word is true. His grace is sufficient, and even in the trials of His providence, He kindles our longing for the new heavens and the new earth our true and lasting home. And so we can truly sing along with faithful, believing Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank You for this inspired account, this historical record of one of Jesus' first miracles here on earth a miracle that confirmed what He had been preaching all along, that He was Lord, Lord God, sovereign ruler over life and death. And we thank You that by faith we are linked to Him so that no trial in this life that is sent to us is without purpose, that all that we endure, even the disappointments of this life, even the painful experiences, even the long nights of waiting for the spiritual transformation of our loved ones. All of these things serve Your purposes, and they kindle our longing for our heavenly home when every tear, every trial, every disappointment, and certainly death itself will be fully and finally removed. And so, Lord, kindle our longing, increase our faith, bolster our trust in You, that we might find our security, our life, our future in our Lord Jesus alone. In His name we pray, amen.